1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: This is the breathtaking story of an old Manchester United manager. This is the story of the ravenously determined man who created the club's academy who single-handedly dragged the club through a six-year global war, who set up United to be managed by an ambitious young Scot named Matt Busby. This is a man who died in the Munich snow. This is Walter Krickner's story, and this is United Through Time.
3: It just blows your mind. What, What an amazing man. A totally amazing man. In
2: 1930, United had nothing. Supporters protested. The bank said no more. The directors didn't know what they were doing. Walter Crickmer dragged Manchester United back from debt to glory. But by the end of the decade, by which time Crickmer had started Manchester United's world-famous academy and become first-team manager too, well, war had begun. In 1941, United had nothing once again. Kits, records, footballs and everything else was destroyed as a stray Nazi bomb struck Old Trafford. Crickmer single-handedly dragged United back to life. This Wigan-born football fanatic cared deeply for his club and worked tirelessly to ensure its success. When Matt Busby came, yet to be demobbed, he had a team ready for glory, all thanks to Walter Crickmer. This is his story, one very rarely told, but a remarkable one nevertheless. And welcome to Series 2 of United Through Time, the interwar years. Welcome to Episode 7, Walter Crickmer. United Through Time is a podcast delving into the history of Manchester United with extensive original research, thorough interviews and immersive documentaries. Going in chronological order, the podcast looks at the most influential individuals from Newton Heath to Manchester United. I'm your host, Harry Robinson, a Manchester United fan, historian and freelance journalist. My guests today are Tony Park, author of Sons of United, Jim White, author of Manchester United, the biography, and Alan Embley, nephew of former United president James W. Gibson. Is episode seven. Walter Krickma. Enjoy.
1: And some fear as the high and low pitch warbling note of the alert sirens were heard.
2: June 1940, Manchester's first air raid siren.
1: In contrast, the complete and utter relief that people felt the once steady one note sound of the all clear, indicating that an air raid was over.
2: It would not be so quiet six months later. The blood curling, wailing warning soared into the cold night air. Within two minutes, the first Nazi incendiary bombs were dropped onto the corner of Princess Street and Clarence Street. It took a light quickly. Within an hour, warehouses from Portland Street to Sackville and Watson Street were gripped by fire and doomed to destruction. Some did not survive the night. Those who did wandered down to police stations and public buildings to check the casualties lists. No one knew if they were to survive the next night. The Germans returned just in time for Sunday tea on December 22nd, 1940. That searing noise penetrated the air once again, and people fled to shelter once again. As they hurried behind tables and into basements, the first drone of plane engines of the Luftwaffe could be heard overhead. Thousands of bombs came with them. The next morning, as young boys, women and elderly men, exempt from fighting, cycled or walked to work, the fire was still ablaze. Manchester was still ablaze. Over in Stretford, Old Trafford had taken a small but endurable hit. Before another six months was out, it would be completely destroyed too. And in the rubble of destruction would stand Walter Crickmer, hands on hips, looking up to a grey sky filled with the dust of a once great football arena and wondering, where do we go from here? Raymond Crickmer was an 1800s baby by about half a month. He grew up in Wigan, Lancashire, and was the first child born to Walter Charles Crickmer and Alice Kelly, who would live beyond his infant years. Walter Charles was a tobacconist salesman, originally from Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. Alice Kelly was a Dubliner and now a housewife. Four of the couple's children died, but Raymond Walter Crickmer made it. He was known as Ray. His very early years were spent right by the Liverpool and Leeds Canal in Wigan, but the family soon moved into Manchester and younger brother Percy was born in Salford in 1906. By age 11, Ray's family lived in Blackley, north Manchester on Moston Lane, just down from Bogart Hole Brook. The Crickmers were at number three, just by a police station and a public bus, opposite an inn and a small school. They lived right on the tramway and the cinema was just down the road. It was quite a nicely developed place. The David Lewis Recreation Ground was just up the road with a decent quality cricket ground, which was occasionally known to host a football match or two. It had big playing fields, one for the boys and one for the girls. Raymond and his brother Percy played on those with their schoolmates. On <laughs> August 4th, 1914, Britain blundered into war with Germany and the 20th century irrevocably changed.
4: But it is clear that the peace of Europe cannot be preserved. We are going to suffer, I am afraid, terribly in this war whether we are in it or whether we stand aside.
2: Raymond Water was 14, too young to join the fight. That being said, he would not have been the only boy of his age to spend their youth battling in the muddy fields of France had he gone. Some suggest as many as 250,000 kids under the age of 18 served in the British Army during World War I. Their reasons for joining were varied. Adventure, patriotism or simply escape from home. Little did they know the utter horror that they would find. Recruitment officers received two shillings and sixpence for every man they processed. A boyish face on a reasonably fit body, and the officers were never going to turn them away. Birth certificates were rare in Britain at this time. I'm 19 was confirmation enough, and soon they were marching towards their death. Fortunately, Raymond Walter Crickmer was not one of those. He stayed put in Manchester. He wasn't even five foot tall yet. The Crickmers had moved to Redcoat Street in Moston, close to Broadhurst Park, now the home of FC United of Manchester. And he was also less than a kilometre away from the original home of Newton Heath LYR Football Club at North Road. Not that Newton Heath were there anymore, of course. Manchester United had already been playing at Old Trafford for half a decade now. Life in Manchester was pretty bleak. With the men away, school kids worked from a young age. One newspaper wrote, Children's hard lot, school by day and at work all
1: night. Some almost incredible facts in regards to child labour were disclosed yesterday in a factory prosecution against Woods Bottle Works Limited, Portobello, near Edinburgh. Five charges were made and the evidence showed that children between 12 and 13 worked in the bottle works throughout the night. They attended school during the day, Started work at six at night, worked till five the next morning and then returned to school. One boy collapsed in the school. he had only had three hours sleep. The prosecutor said it took us back 100 years.
2: A fine of £10 was imposed. There were more than 1,000 Mancunian kids younger than 11 in jobs of these sort. There was little to eat, little to do, and the weather wasn't great either. Life was particularly bleak at the end of 1917. The war was meant to have come to its bitter conclusion already. Soldiers on both sides had been told so, but still, it raged on. The end of 1917 also brought with it the 18th birthday for Raymond, and he joined the army, becoming Private Number 78794. He was just under 5 foot 2 inches, with fair physical development, brown eyes and brown hair. The examiner noted that he'd previously suffered from bronchitis and was slightly flat-footed. After some months of training, he was assigned to the Wigan Battalion, the 5th Battalion of the Manchester Infantry Brigade in the East Lancashire Division. The 5th had some history to it. They were a unit of the territorial force who had moved from Rochdale immediately to Egypt. At the start of the war was instructions to defend the Suez Canal from Turkish forces in Palestine. They soon went to Alexandria, fought in Gallipoli, before being evacuated after heavy losses in January 1916. In early 1917, after continued defence of Suez, they were ordered to the Western Front in Europe. A summer training session completed, they moved into Flanders in the autumn and fought in the Third Battle of Ypres, as Ray Crickmer was just completing his forms back home in Manchester. As he trained, his future mates fought in Baupame, Arras, Anker, Albert, Baupame again, and the Canal du Nord and Celle. In July 1918, Crickmer was ready for duty. He went to the reception depot in Warrington, and his service began. Things could move so slowly that it's difficult to know whether Raymond Walter ever met up with the 5th Battalion in the Charleroi area. If he did, he may have come across Wilfred Owen, the greatest poet of the Great War, who had also fought in the Fifth but was now stationed nearby with the Second Manchester.
4: If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear... At every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori.
2: armistice was declared at 11am on November the 11th, 1918, a week before Wilfred Owen was killed in action, aged 25. Crickmo was examined at Scarborough in January 1919. He had suffered no injuries and was soon dispersed from Heaton Park. On July the 1st, 1920, a very small document was signed by the manager of Manchester United Football Club, Jack Robson, and Raymond walter And
3: When he arrived at Old Trafford as the assistant secretary or whatever it was, the manager at the time, Robson, didn't want to call him Raymond, because his real name was Raymond walter Crickmer Didn't want to call him Raymond because he thought, I'm not going to remember that, but I'll remember Walter, so I'm going to call you Walter. And the name stuck.
2: And so Walter, presumably still Ray, to his mates and family, trudged off to the forward Barracks in Preston and got his employment contract stamped off the next day by his commanding officer. He'd got himself a decent job. Survival was the sole target of Manchester United during the Great War. The stadium, only opened a few years previous, had been used for a variety of purposes. Military storage for one, but also for games of baseball between American soldiers and for two major football matches. The first of these was the nineteen fifteen FA Cup final, known as the Kharki Cup final because of the number of uniformed soldiers in attendance. Sheffield United were 3 0 winners against Chelsea as a muted crowd watched on shrouded in a typical Manchester drizzle accompanied by a fog. Lord Derby, in charge of presenting the cup, used his moment in the spotlight to appeal for volunteers for the army. As the harsh winter of nineteen seventeen closed in and Walter Crickma turned eighteen, A combined Manchester team played against Belgian soldiers to raise money for Belgian charities back home. After the war, life at the club was unremarkable. The team was unremarkable. But for Crickmer, it was employment he would certainly have been glad for. Britain was very much in the shadow of what it called the Kaiser's War. Returning soldiers found few job opportunities. Unemployment would stay high until the next world war because Britain's main industries, coal, cotton, steel and iron, had declined. The United States was much better placed to target the world market and economic growth in Britain ranged from low to non-existent. Simultaneously, the labour supply had grown. Soldiers returned to find their jobs taken by those who had stayed at home. Kids who had been too young to fight but had matured. Women who had played a key role in the war effort and had every right to keep the jobs they had taken up. So Crickmer would have been delighted to be organising, rather than relying upon, a benefit match between two United teams to support the Lord Mayor's unemployment fund. A year after joining United, he married to Nellie. They had a daughter, Beryl, in September 1921. A job was essential then, and United was not a remarkable place, but not a bad place either. The president was the ever-paternal John Henry Davies. The chairman was George Lawton, the accountant who had been involved in Newton Heath. Harold Hardman was a director. And Louis Rocker was doing odd jobs here and there. As assistant secretary, Crickmer found all sorts of jobs presented themselves to him. In April 1922, the bandmaster contacted the directors to inform them that the band's drum had been badly damaged.
1: It was agreed that they should have the drum repaired and the club would make good for the cost of the same.
2: Crickmer will have sorted that. A year later, the manager reported that the donkey was unable to do any further work on the ground. It was agreed that he should, if possible, procure another donkey or a small pony. The donkey was responsible for pulling a roll across the pitch to flatten any bumps. Crickmer probably went out to find a new one. United were not a good team. They experienced financial difficulties only held off and delayed by Davies' wealth, and they resorted to defensive and physical football in an era where the game was advancing quickly due to the tactical advances initiated by Herbert Chapman at Huddersfield and Arsenal. On the other side of the city, Manchester City, with Matt Busby in defence, would soon join Chapman's teams and Everton as one of the great forces of the era. United were brutish, led by the brilliant Frank Barson in defence and Joe Spence in attack. There was no meat to the bones of this flailing side. Crickwell was responsible for player administration, liaising with other club secretaries, attending league meetings, all of that kind of stuff, the kind of work that any secretary of any football club would, whatever the size, location or era. Though a relatively unextraordinary role, Walter's first decade at the club involved some interesting highlights as well as the donkey and the drum. In 1924, the Lancashire Rugby Union played and hosted the All Blacks at Old Trafford. The New Zealanders were touring the UK, Ireland, France and Canada and won all 32 of their games, including this one, by 23 to nothing. And they became known as the Invincibles. A few weeks later, in 1924, Cyril Brownlee became the first ever player in rugby history to be sent off in an international in a game at Twickenham. And talking of internationals, Crickma helped organise England against Scotland, played at Old Trafford in April 1926. That was only a few months before the shock, FA suspension of John Chapman, United manager and secretary. No one was sure why Chapman had been suspended. No one knows now. It was all kept very quiet. Lau Hilditch became manager for a little bit, Herbert Bamlett soon replaced him, and Walter Crickmer was promoted up from assistant secretary to secretary. John Henry Davies died in 1927. He had been United's benefactor for a quarter of a century and the bastion of hope back in 1902. Crickmer began to take on a great deal more importance at the club as they became directionless without their long-time leader.
1: The death of this great benefactor
2: heralded the most anxious period in the history of the club, was the words of Percy Young. There are four great periods where United has teetered on the brink of disaster. 1901, as Newton Heath, was the first. This was the second, a period starting from Davies' passing and accelerating as the 1930s began. Krickmer was involved here, as he would be in the third when United crawled through the Second World War on its knees. And in a way, Krickmer would be involved in the fourth too, the Munich Air Disaster. The Wall Street crash of October 1929 heralded the start of the Great Depression, an event with enormous global ramifications and to which Manchester United's extinction would have been merely a footnote. The crisis of
4: 1930 uh, re- really was significant. I mean... Uh, this
2: is Jim White talking now.
4: Yeah, I have to remember that, that this is the time of uh, uh, a huge downturn in the local economy. I think, I think nine out of ten... Uh, of the working population of Salford was unemployed. You know, it, it affected Manchester massively. The international downturn uh, trade had virtually disappeared. The cotton cotton trade wasn't going. Industrial output was right down, um, and as a consequence, people just didn't have money to go
2: to watch the game. The new decade came in, and United were rubbish. Fans sought action in 1930. They blamed the management of the club. 3,000 of them met at Hume Town Hall and declared a no confidence in the board of management. Crickmer bristled. He responded in the newspaper. A boycott of the next day's game against Arsenal was unsuccessful and actually 30,000 watched United totter to an 11th consecutive defeat. On April 5th, 1931, Herbert Bamlett was sacked as manager of Manchester United. The sportsman complained that Manchester United have robbed us of half our relegation thrill by becoming certs for the honour before the season was even half over. The Athletic News admitted There's a big task ahead for his successor. That successor was to be Raymond Walter Crickmer, now at the club for more than 11 years. The idea was never for him to be a true football manager. His title was secretary manager and the appointment was supposedly a temporary one. Crickmer's first game in charge, though his appointment was not yet announced at the time, it was a 4-1 win against Liverpool. Goals came from Reid, Rowley and Huey McLenahan, the stockpot boy signed by Louis Rocker, for a freezer full of ice cream. United finished the season poorly, had their relegation confirmed and weren't quite sure whether they could even afford to pay players' wages over the summer months without the income from gate receipts. Only 3,500 fans turned up to watch United's first home game of the 1931-32 season, this in a massive arena Old Trafford. They were beaten 3-2 by Southampton on that first day of the season. And by the start of December, United had won only five of 17 games in England's second division and were sat 14th. You
4: know, they, they, they had this magnificent stadium at, at Old Trafford, but it was, it was empty. You know, people were rattling around in it because nobody could afford to go to the football.
2: As Christmas 1931 neared, Walter Crickmer, club secretary, marched off to the bank to pick up the wages for his players, as he always did. The players were waiting patiently in his office, but Walter was delayed. At the bank, the clerk was telling him that Manchester United Football Club could not pay for their players' wages. They were skint.
4: Christmas 1931, uh, Crickmer, as secretary, was looking for the funds to do what was traditional at Christmas time, which was to buy all the families of all the players and staff a turkey. He was told there's no money, so he can't do it.
2: A new benefactor came in, clothing magnate James W. Gibson, the subject of episode eight of United Through Time. Four years on from the death of J.H. Davies, J.W. Gibson hauled the club up from the pits of despair and financial ruin. He paid the wages, bought them their Christmas turkeys, and promised to finance United until January 9th, 1932, about two and a half weeks away, some time had been bought. Gibson found in Crickmer a determined man who could put into practice a vision. And Gibson fell in love with United. They planned the future together. Gibson, the visionary. Crickmer the administrative expert. From very early on, Gibson's intentions were clear. At an early board meeting, he spoke about The advisability
1: of running a Colts team or nursery, as from next season.
2: Crickmer kept United in the second division. Just. He was no football manager, but he had done a decent job. In the summer, Scott Duncan was appointed, a former player of Dumbarton, Newcastle United and Rangers and recently manager of Hamilton Academicals and Cowdenbeath. He had experience. In mid-July 1932, Duncan travelled from Glasgow to Manchester. There, he met the members of the United Supporters Club, who had boycotted only two years prior. And afterwards, Duncan was taken to his accommodation by the amical United man, Crickmer. Who put him up in his house for the first few days in Manchester?
3: Gibson was very keen to have a team of Manchester footballers that were only from Manchester, but in those days it was almost impossible because you got your players from local non league circles and they weren't always Manchester based players. One of the first things he did was hire Scott Duncan as the manager. And he gave Duncan a very specific remit, which was, you know, let's get youth football started.
2: Youth football in the 1930s was different to now. Football was tougher. Kids were smaller. 16-year-olds have played for United in recent years. Mason Greenwood and Angel Gomez to name two. But that was not possible in the 1930s.
3: There's just no way. They were too small, too slight. The game wasn't quick enough. It was an old, tumbly, rough, kick-the-shit-out-of-you kind of Environment and young 16 17 year old kids would not survive. They would have, you know, they would have got serious injuries, they would have looked like crap players because they would. And you got to remember, they're kicking this huge ball around and it gets piss wet, piss wet through, and it's, you know, they're only 16 17. So it's, 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 it's what people don't understand in today's game is it's so different back then.
2: By 1939, though, United's first team stabilized itself and won the Manchester Senior Cup. The reserves won the Central League, a feat they had not achieved for 18 years. United had an A-team too now and they, with an average age of only 17, won the Manchester League. The Moojacks, meanwhile, won their division of the Chiltern League. All of this in 1939, seven years away at this point, and then it would all be a reward for half a decade of determined and intelligent work from Walter Crickmer. It was a sign to him and to James Gibson that this could work, that Manchester United could have a team made up of Manchester men. So how did it happen? Louis Rocker had been scouting for United for many years. He was innovative. He used the knowledge of local Catholic priests and teachers and church people to scout footballers across the country. But the players he would be signing would be at the youngest, 18 or 19, and more often than not in their mid-20s. There's a few reasons for that, as Tony Park helps to explain.
3: If you look at who United had in their team in the 1910s and 20s, we bought everybody from other clubs, and every club did that because there was no youth football. And you've got to remember, Harry, people don't understand as well as they, you know, as, as they understand with social history. You know, if you go back to the 20s, there wasn't the money around to five football teams. You know, United was scrimping for shirts for the first team and the reserves. There was no money. They were scrimping for transfer fees. They were scrimping to pay players, you know, Christmas bonuses with, with turkeys and all this sort of stuff. It was, it, even though it was a professional game, it was an amateurly run process. So what you had was you had, you know, no infrastructure, no coaching staff, no, you know, no grounds, no no fitness center, no gymnasiums available for young players. So what would happen is the only thing they could do was buy experienced players from other clubs. And you got to remember 1920s is very different from the 2020s. In the 1920s, you left school, you went down a mine, you were a young kid, skinny, reiki kid. And within two years, you had to, you know, you grew muscle because the types of jobs you were doing for 10 hours a day was backbreaking, you know, muscle developing kind of work. You know, these, these kids were not in offices, you know, with, with laptops. These kids. groups, this is the point though, they, it took two or three years to develop them and they were playing alongside other men and these men were burly. I mean, fuck me,
2: these men were like monsters. Teenage footballers weren't good enough and clubs didn't have enough money. A fact that was exaggerated greatly by the 1929 Wall Street crash. And that was when United came close to the brink. Gibson stepped in with his philosophy and Crickmer helped him to achieve it.
3: Gibson said to Crickman, right, well, what are we going to do? And they said, right, the well, first thing we'll do is we'll start an A-team in the Manchester League. So the A-team is like an under-18 team, which is really the, is really the start of the youth team, if you like. But it was filled not with 15- and 16-year-old players. It was filled with a lot of local non-league players who were kind of at first on trial, and then they would, they would if they were any good they would then have a chance of getting through to the first team.
2: So the Manchester United Academy didn't start in 1932, but the A-team did. In the 1932-33 season, United played 16 games in a midweek league, eight in each half of the season. For United, it acted as a second reserve team, a chance to give trialists and young kids a chance against decent opposition.
3: So out of that team, only George Bose made it through to the first team. It wasn't that conveyor belt of talent we kind of understand youth, youth teams to be in academies to be today. It was purely, let's put, a, let's put a team out there in the Manchester League against, you know, works teams such as ICI, you know, McMahons, such as Ashfield, and then local teams in the area such as, you know, Newton Heath Athletic and Denton United and, and um, Pendlebury and all this. And then as well as kind of first teams for teams like Glossop and New Mills, Chaplin Lafribe and then the A-teams of Stockport and Manchester City and, and these other, other First Division teams.
2: So, it was a, so the A-team was a real mix. The A-team's creation allowed Crickmer the time and space to really work out what it was he wanted and needed. At this point, it was not a pioneering idea. Other clubs did it too. City had an A-team, Stockport had an A-team. It would be what happened later that was actually defining.
3: In the mid-30s, particularly when United got promoted in 35-36, I think Crikma picked it back up and said, "Okay, let's let's really look at this. How are we actually going to get a junior psychology or junior culture started at the club?" So what he did in thirty seven thirty eight, he went around to all the local schools and started working, particularly with a guy called John Bill B I W L. And John Bill, you know, felt, was a big United fan, and he was very keen to help Crickmer out. And um, what crickmer then did was he, in 37-8, he set the infrastructure in place by organising all these local school teachers, all the you know, heads of sporting establishments. He spoke to people about what grounds to play on. He spoke about what leagues
2: were going to go into. crickmer was a United man and a United fan, but he was a football man too. He loved the game, which explains why he was on the committees and boards of leagues all across Manchester his work ethic was incredible and it meant he knew the game in manchester better than almost any of his peers
3: he was also on the, the board of the league of manchester he was on the committee for manchester boys he was on the committee for the football league secretaries he was on the committee he was on the committee for about five different things so how he how he found time to do all this stuff i have no idea but you know you, you know you've always heard that saying if you want something done give it to a busy man you know so but he he was already on on the committees of all these local leagues and local cups and local referees associations and local councils and he's he on them all the time. So you can imagine how often they're meeting. He's going to all the meetings. And if you look at any of the uh, in my memorabilia collection, I've got like handbooks from all these different things. And his name's on them all the time, cropping up as you know committee, you know secretary of the committee or chairman of the committee or whatever it might be. And you're thinking, Jesus Christ, does this man does this man never?
2: With that knowledge of Mancunian football and the help of John Bill and a network of teachers, Crickmer changed the organisation of youth football. No longer did Louis Rocker go out to scout potential United signings aged 20 or 21, but now a system was created which brought the very best of Manchester into the care of Manchester United.
3: So what Crickmer did was he went to all the Manchester schools. So if you can imagine how many schools are in Manchester, so he would go to all the schools and speak to all the deputies and speak to the PE instructors and say, I'm, this is what I'm trying to do. Can you send me my best boys? And obviously it was prestigious for these lads to have played for Manchester boys and maybe England boys. It was even more prestigious to be then saying, oh, they're going to go and be a Manchester United player. So all the kids were interested. All the PE all the e. teachers wanted their kids to get taken on by United. And all the schools wanted the prestige of saying, you know, you know one of the kids in our school is now turned into a professional footballer. So what Krikma did was, and what, and I said this guy John Bill, he was a deputy head or a headmaster or a PE teacher. That he was one of the instrumental people helping Krikma. And my guess is he helped on the administrative side from the school angle by, you know, maybe being the organizer of school meetings amongst the different school heads or the school PE teachers. You know, on you know once a week or once a month or however long, however often it happened. He was kind of the vocal point. He, was, he didn't work for United, but crickmer would have used him to try to organise everybody together. you got to remember, this is, all amateur, this is all amateur stuff, right? There's, all, there's
2: no, no professionalism in here at all. Gibson's ownership, defined by an equilibrium of wealth and ability to delegate an ambition, stabilised United, led by crickmer's steady hand. And after the stabilisation could come some creativity. In early June 1937, at a board meeting, the club, now in the First Division, under manager Scott Duncan,
1: decided to give special attention to coaching and practice, also seriously to consider the advisability of having each team watched in the match previous to that game against this club, with a view to receiving a special report on the play of each of the club's opponents.
2: Scouting the opposition. Ten months later, on the 22nd of February 1938, another meeting was held
1: with reference to the formation of a junior athletic club for cultivating young players after they leave school. The scheme was submitted and approved and the matter was left with the secretary. Walter Crickmer.
3: No other club had ever done this. We were the first.
0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Krikma said, right, let me go into the schools and get them directly from schools. But rather than put them in the A-team, because they're not big enough, they're not strong enough, and I can't put them in reserves, so I'll just get kicked to shit out of. So let's put them in the Moojacks, where they're playing against other junior teams of their of their ilk, but in an organized way, so that the kids from this team would feel an obligation and an affinity with Manchester United. And so they would then go in from the Moojacks B to the Moojacks A, and then the Moojacks A to the A team, the A team to the reserves and the reserves to the first team. What you've got then is you've got the first trials of the Mujacks in August of 1938. And the Mujax A and the Mujacks B were launched. And they would be playing in local leagues against other, other schoolboys in, in an open age group, which meant that United lads were 15, 16, straight out of school. He was the man behind orchestrating and organizing
1: all of that stuff.
2: In another board meeting in August, James Gibson spoke with customary
1: cheerfulness and paid a particularly glowing tribute to the club's marvellous secretary, Walter Crickmer, who more than replaced the energy that any manager could have put in.
2: Scott Duncan had left the club by now. He and Gibson never had a truly harmonious relationship. Back in 1932, Gibson had paid Broughton Rangers a decent sum and bought the Cliff. It was a place for the A-team to train while the reserves and first team used Old Trafford. Six years on from that purchase, hundreds of kids competed at the Cliff. The reward they were chasing and seeking was a spot in the Manchester United Junior Athletic Club.
3: And kids were coming from all these schools in all shapes and sizes.
2: Crickmer, assisted by Louis Rocker, John Bill and perhaps a couple of senior players from the first team as well, Together, they whittled down the many teenagers to 30 kids. 15 players for the Mujak A team, 15 more for the Mujak B team. To remind you, the organisation of the club's teams was going to be first team, reserves, A team, Mujak A, and then Mujak B. Five teams in that order.
3: And that's what they did. Now, Johnny Aston, who was one of the first um, names down there, Johnny Aston, who you might have heard of his name as a United player in the 40s and 50s, he came from that system So he was one of the original schoolboys From East from East Manchester So I think he lived on Ashton Old Road He was out towards Ashton Way Which is East Manchester So he would have played for East Manchester Boys And then Manchester Boys And he was asked to come along for trials Because the school he went to He was probably the best kid in the school And so the PE teacher Or the, hep or the deputy of sport Whatever it was Said look John you go ahead for trials And that was the name that they gave they might have given you know four or five names, I don't know. Because no records exist. But Johnny Aston played in that MuJack's day and he was a significantly good player and he obviously made it all the way through the first team.
2: When James Gibson spoke about the new Mujack system to interested journalists and directors, he was clear to point one thing out. United assumes no possessive attitude in respect of the boys. Alan Embling here, nephew of James Gibson.
4: The only thing condition he put on them was they would consider. And the word is consider playing for United. He didn't put you've got to play, consider.
1: We only tell them, he said, that we hope that if as a result of what the club has done they rise to anything like fame, they will bear the club in mind. It is from these unusually comprehensive nurseries that the club hopes an All-Manchester team at some distant period might be produced.
2: Krikmur had brought together the very best young footballers in Manchester. So what you
3: had, Harry, is you've got Krikmur in his first season, and the Moojacks won all their league. They were winning games twelve 0 and fifteen 0 and you know they were just because it was the cream of Manchester against you know local youth teams and church teams and you know social teams and you know all this sort of stuff. So they were they were the cream of the crop, and they just used to beat everybody all every week. So they ended up at the end of the season, you know, beating, you know, winning the league title by a bloody cart, cartwheel, scoring 200 goals or something. It was just, you know, it was just stupid. But what happened, and I spoke to a few of the players who were existing some years ago, and they said it was just, it was just like no one had ever heard of it. No one had ever seen it. It was exciting. All the all the boys wanted to play. You know, then the kids would go back to school the next day. and know, they were the talk of the town. So it became this really prestigious thing to play for the Mujacks, And everybody wanted to play for the Mujacks. who, who was in school. And then all of a sudden, Crickman then started to get his conveyor belt going. And now all the Manchester boys were starting to filter through to the Manchester first team. And, and it shows in the first couple of years of the war, a lot of these lads started playing football.
2: If we go back to the first team quickly, they had no manager. Scott Duncan had left. Crickmore was in temporary charge again, and this time with Louis Rocker's help as before. I was surprised, wrote the Sunday Chronicle, after United beat Chelsea 5-1 in September 1938. By Manchester United.
1: Here at Old Trafford, they are actually keeping the ball on the turf in attack, instead of thumping it all over the premises, and are running into position to receive passes.
2: Stan Pearson, Johnny Kerry and Jack Rowley all played. Three men who would be vital in the early Busby era. United would end the season finishing 14th in the 1st Division. It was the highest finish for them in a decade. Optimism filled Old Trafford. The first team had improved, the finances were better. United had registered a profit for five consecutive years. And remember earlier? Well, this is 1939. The first team won the Manchester Senior Cup. The reserves won the championship of the Central League for the first time in 18 years. The A-team, with an average age of 17, they won the Manchester League. The Mujak, they won their division of the Chaltern League. Manchester United had been brought back from the dead.
4: You know, Krikma was the man who basically pulled them back from the very lip of tumbling over.
2: Gibson provided investment and ambition. Rocker, John Bill, Jimmy Porter and senior players provided crucial assistance. But Crickmer was the man behind the project, the first stage of which had been completed. And now James Gibson reiterated his main objective.
4: We have no intention of buying any more mediocrities. From now on, we will have a Manchester United composed of Manchester players.
2: This episode was researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Harry Robinson, in association with the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Next time on United Through Time in part two, war, bombs, the goslings, trophies, Busby, Babes, and Munich.